Welcome to St. Martin of the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music on its 10th anniversary. A special welcome to those joining us online. I've got two questions for all who are with us in the building today. First of all, is there anyone here who was here 10 years ago when Great Sacred Music began? Not the first one. We've got two. That's fantastic. Two are close enough. Two are close enough. Fantastic. And who here today pledges to be here in 10 years' time on the 20th anniversary? Hello? <laughs> Thank you. It's our tradition. Uh, we're just doing a bit of self-indulgence for the next half hour of going through some of our favorite stories and favorite pieces from 10 years of great sacred music. Uh, it's our tradition. Uh, not actually, yes, I think even from the first one, but uh, to sing all together twice during the half hour together. So we're going to keep that tradition. If you'd like to take your leaflets and find the hymn on the left-hand side of the inside page. Uh, Martin Rinkart became the pastor of the small German town of Eilenburg in 1618, just as the slaughter and chaos of the Thirty Years' War was beginning. <clears throat> this was a period so catastrophic that the population of Germany fell by around a third over 30 years. Eilenburg was a walled city. It became a crowded haven for political and military refugees. This left the city vulnerable to disease and famine. In the year 1637, there was a terrible plague. Martin Rinkert was the only pastor remaining in Eilenburg. He conducted 4,000 funerals that year, including up to 50 funerals a day. As the signs of peace began to appear and the tide of slaughter, famine, and plague began to recede in the 1640s, Martin Rinkart had lost half his own household, including his wife. He sat down at the Peace of Westphalia and wrote one of the most famous hymns in the German language, Nun Dankit Allegot, which we know today as Now Thank We All Our God. We remain seated, the voices stand and lead us as we sing that together.
Well, they sometimes say of the Roman Catholic Church that everything's forbidden until it becomes obligatory. And that was certainly true in the 17th century uh, uh, for Protestantism because the mass in English was forbidden until 1549 when it became obligatory. And that meant the creation of a whole genre of English choral music. And William Byrd and Thomas Tallis were chiefly responsible for creating that genre. Um, because very few people were in a position to do so, uh, less scrutiny was perhaps applied to their own religious persuasion. Uh, and so as they were g gathering together all the, so many anthems that are now sung at Evensong throughout the land, um, and doing settings of the mass, uh, what escaped the scrutineers' attention and how the way they escaped the bonfire was by masking their own uh, Catholic sympathies. And that's never more true than in Bird's Mass for Four Voices, where his name was never put on the music and the, even the publisher's name was never placed on the music. It was all kept uh, secret. And there are subtle uh, references if you look at the credo, the, the, the creed, um, you'll find that the word Catholic is repeated twice. Now, as you may know, in the creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church wasn't originally meant to mean Roman Catholic because in the fourth century, there was no such thing as Roman Catholic. Um, but obviously to affirm subtly their own sympathies, uh, well, certainly Bird made sure that word in the creed was repeated twice so nobody could, who was on the inside could miss it. But anyway, those who weren't looking for a gesture could easily miss it. So those sorts of subtle messages are throughout the music, and we're going to hear one of the most exquisite uh, pieces of 16th century English choral music in a moment, the Agnes Dei from Bird's Mass for Four Voices. Uh, and that's a gesture to the state of the world at the moment as one of the most beautiful prayers for peace we have in the canon. Then we're going to hear uh, another extraordinary piece for very different reasons uh, both because of its theology and because of the circumstances in which it was composed. Um, you'll often catch me saying that the words from Song of Songs, ch uh, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, love is strong as death, are the most significant words in the Bible, because to say that love is stronger than death is pretty much the whole of the Bible's witness in one sentence, and it's been set many times, particularly for weddings, but this uh, setting by Rennie Clausen wasn't set for the occasion of the wedding. It was a very tragic uh, situation where his wife, Frankie, had had several miscarriages. She had carried a baby to six months, uh, but there was an amniocentesis test in which the doctor, uh, by a terrible accident, uh, killed the baby. And uh, the baby died instantly, and yet she still had to deliver the baby. So they went through this extraordinary painful experience as a couple. What did René Clausen do about it? He went straight home, and in 20 minutes, he wrote the anthem that you're going to hear in a few moments' time.
Well, I've just said that Song of Songs, chapter 8, is, are the most significant words in the Bible. Uh, we're now going to hear the saddest words in the Bible from the story of David and Absalom. Uh, these are set by Thomas Tompkins, the Welshman who lived in the, or was composing in the early 17th century and settled in Worcester and wrote a good deal of the music for Charles I's coronation. Why do I say the saddest words in the Bible? Absalom, my son, my son, oh my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. David recognizes in a moment when he hears the news of his son's death, the waywardness of his child. Uh, they say you're as happy as your least happy child. David was not happy when his uh, son Absalom rebelled against his monarchy and tried to make himself king, but recognized, of course, another layer the failures in his own kingship, which are, I think, widely known, uh, that had been partly responsible for Absalom's rebellion. And I think what's so exquisite about this piece is that the way that layer upon layer of grief are laid upon us in the different phrases of the music. Uh, and, and then we can think about the different layers of grief that David is going through, grief as a king, grief as a father, uh, and so on, but, but also the, the different theological layers. We've got the layer of identifying with David's grief, recognizing how he could have done things differently, but that always makes grief worse. The, the sense that this is like any parent's feeling about their child suffering or dying, would that I had died instead of you. And then finally, there's the theological level where we think of the father watching the son on the cross die and saying, would that I had died instead of you. And then if you take the traditional theological line, that, that Christ did in fact die instead of Absalom and of David. So there's so many layers of texture in the text and in the music, which makes this such a remarkable piece. And then we're going to hear something a bit more cheerful. It's about time probably you'll be saying by then. Uh, Isaac Watts, uh, when Rory Stewart spoke here in our autumn lecture series a month ago, uh, a, a very direct questioner at the end of his lecture said, you know, if you've got all these bright ideas about how the government should be done, why don't you go back into Parliament and run it yourself? And Rory's answer was unforgettable. He looked straight at the questioner and said, why don't you? So young Isaac Watts had the same, the same response when he spoke to his father and said, why are all the hymns in the hymn book so miserable? Uh, why can't we have some decent ones? And his father looked at him and said, it's about time maybe you, young man, should write some. So he wrote 750 hymns. Um, but he was never, of course, able to study at Oxford, Cambridge, because he was a nonconformist. And back in those days, we didn't talk about phrases like being an inclusive church. Nothing inclusive about the Church of England in those days. No room for eyes at once, which is much to the loss of the Church of England and not too much to the loss of... Uh, of, of Isaac himself. Other, one other special thing about this second anthem, uh, Give Us the Wings of Faith, is that it's become a kind of anthem of the Nazareth community and companions of Nazareth based here at St. Martin's. So it has a special resonance in this community uh, for those reasons too.
Well, it's time for us all to sing again. Uh, if you find on the inside right-hand page of your sheets, Joachim Neander was a 17th century German Calvinist. He was on the brink of death at the tender age of 30 when he wrote the famous words, All My Hope. 250 years later, almost to the day, Robert Bridges translated Neander's hymn and sent it to Herbert Howells. Herbert, Herbert Howells was deep in grief after the death from spinal meningitis of his nine-year-old son, Michael. Howells received the hymn text at breakfast time, didn't move from his chair until he composed this tune, and he named the tune after his son, Michael. We remain seated, voices stand and lead us, as we sing All My Hope on God is Founded. Well, we're coming towards the end of 10 years of great sacred music, but we will be back next week and our sister program, Choral Classics, will also be back this Sunday at 3.15. If you've enjoyed yourself today, uh, there's an opportunity to make a donation as you leave if you're in the building or online if you're online. 
Um, if you wish you'd been at the all, uh, every single one of the last 10 years of Great Sacred Music, you can make a donation as if you had been at all of those. That will be just fine too. We can take cards or cash or whatever you, whatever's best for you. We're going to finish. We do like a big finish or a throwaway ending at St. Martin's, and this is, I think, the original big finish. It's René Clausen again. This is a piece he composed for the Duke Chapel Choir when I was Dean of Duke Chapel uh, just during my last year, 2011 12, um, 11 or 12 years ago now. Uh, it's got a particular story attached to it. You'll probably realize by now all of these pieces of music have a story attached to them. In 1873, Chicago lawyer Horatio Spafford sent his wife and four daughters to England for a holiday and went to New York to wave them off. Nine days later, Spafford received a telegram from his wife with the unimaginably horrifying words, saved alone. He got the next boat to England and when the ship passed the point of the tragedy that had claimed his four daughters and 222 others, he went to his cabin and wrote this extraordinary hymn. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>